and welcome to Sonic Talk number 427, recording live today on Wednesday, the 25th of November 2015. Uh, please say a big thank you to our sponsors, brought to you by Isotope, uh, makers of Ozone Software. There'll be a competition a little bit later, and also by UVI Falcon. Creative hybrid instrument from UVI. More information on that can be found at bit.ly forward slash stfalcon. You can, if you're watching the, uh, uh, the YouTube version of this, the video version, you'll see the link at the bottom of the page. Otherwise, it's uh, bit.ly slash stfalcon, all one word, lowercase. I want to thank them very much for their sponsor for the show. So, guys, we have, uh, I want to say hello to our chat room as well. Thank you very much. A nice, fulsome one. And it's not surprising because we've only got Diego Stocco here, who's been, he's thrown an all-nighter. Well, no, he hasn't actually. He got up very early to join oh, us really? to join <laughs> us this morning, and I forgot to I forgot to unmute you. Diego Stocco, of course, maker of some insane physical instruments, some fantastic software instruments, works on all sorts of presets, does a lot of very amazing things with sound. How are you, Diego? I'm good. How are you, Nick? It's good to be back. Yeah, it's been a little while, hasn't it? You've been busy, I could see. We're going to talk a little bit about your new project later on, but uh, it's great to have you aboard. Uh, I think last time we had you, I think you had an issue with a leaf blower, from what I recall. Oh, yes, yes, I moved. <laughs> but, you know, you can't really escape sounds uh, here in uh, in Los Angeles. Actually, I read the news yesterday about this new system that allows planes to take off and land uh, at a lower altitude around Santa Monica, and that area is very expensive, but now basically those residents will have a higher volume of noise from planes because of this new system. Great. And it's amazing if you think about it, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, not in a good I suppose, way. But... I suppose that sort of thing is likely to affect uh, resident uh, house prices, but I guess the thing is, is a man so involved in sound and the nuance of the ambience around you and recognising, you know, the, the fundamental harmonics of this, that and the other, squirrels eating walnuts or whatever it may be, you must be very easily distracted when it comes to just a sort of average walk down the street. I am, yes. It's, uh, it's hard to keep... Uh, it's like seeing flashes, you know, <laughs> but they just happen with sounds. Ah, you're not... Uh, what's the thing? that is it synesthesia where you, uh, you visualise yeah, audio? You synesthesia. Don't, synesthesia. Yeah. You don't, I, don't have, I don't have synesthesia. I think I'm already a wreck with, with sounds as they are. <laughs> I couldn't imagine being combined with visions, you know. Yeah, you're lucky then. I mean, if that was the case, you'd be, you'd be absolutely... Yeah, that would be trouble, I guess. Uh, that, right. chuck, that chuckle you heard there is uh, Mark Tinley, who we've got with us today. Mark Tinley, marktinley.co.uk, sound artist and uh, creative thinker. How are you, Mark? I'm all right. I do have uh, synesthesia, actually, but only on very loud or unexpected sounds, um, which is... It's a weird thing, but and I sometimes see coloured shapes in my head when I hear sounds, or or the, if I hear really loud sounds, I get what's like a kind of a whole load of sparkles of like little white, kind of like white fairy lights behind my head, which just it's like, oh Jesus, what was that? But um, I mean, thank God I don't have it on everything. It is a weird thing. Yeah, I can imagine um, that is. Uh, and apart from that, I'm very well. Actually, well, that doesn't stop me from being well either. But there no, you no. go. It just <laughs> just means. Well, I'll try and keep the uh, the uh, the plosives and the and the unexpected sounds down to a minimum there, so we don't uh, we don't have you hallucinating during the show. Never a good. Uh, Actually, you you have made me jump once already. When I first phoned in, you suddenly started playing a synth, and I was like, whoa! <laughs> but I didn't see anything. Well, I, I can only apologise, but uh, while we were talking, uh, there was an unexpected interjection there from our guest number two, Mr. Robbie Bronneman, who's there in uh, on location where he's producing an album. Uh, Robbie, of course, is a producer, sound... Uh, no, what am I talking about? Composer, studio owner, um, all sorts of things. How are you, Robbie? Yeah, good, thanks. Just just kind of fighting off the flu this week, so oh. hence maybe a bit of coughing and snivelling. <laughs> is it man flu or proper flu? Uh, it's been somewhere in between the two. 
Oh, God, I really don't want medium to get Medium man flu. Medium man flu. A heavy, a heavy man cold and a light man, a medium man flu. Well, I'm sorry that's to hear right. that, Robbie. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that, Robbie. All right, yeah. well, I, I guess we could just jump straight in because uh, I have actually prepared some topics and things. Ago. I'd, oh, before we go, just say uh, uh, thank you very much to our fulsome chat room, uh, increasing by the second. So uh, let's see if we can break any records this week. Nice to see you all in there. And, of course, we'll uh, be announcing a winner and a new competition from Isotope a bit later on. So do stay tuned. But... But let's have this first. This has been practically viral. It's a kind of custom piece of hardware that's designed uh, for sampling environmental sounds and creating... This is called the kaleidoscope. I'll let him explain. start by recording something. Ah. This is the kaleidoscope for Dr. Mix. This is the kaleidoscope for Dr. I won't play the whole thing. I mean, I'm guessing for many of you, granular synthesis and that sort of level of sample manipulation will be nothing new. I guess what is really new is this idea. I mean, it's almost like an iPad app times about 50. And uh, I know it, it just look. It, it seems to have gone everywhere. I mean, all the major sort of tech news feeds have picked it up. It's got. I mean, this was this. I think this video was shot. You know, not not recently, uh, at least uh, if I understand it right. It basically, it's a interactive installation, collaborative musical instrument by Ben Bengler and uh, Fiora Martin, uh, and they made it in March, not two hundred and fifteen. It's been exhibited at the Sonar D conference and Digital Design Weekend at the V&A Album Museum quite recently. Now, I, I'll start with uh, I'll start with you, Diego, because I mean, you're you're. <laughs> You're not um, unfamiliar with um, macro editing of samples, I'd imagine. This looks like a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, the, the, there's some questions as to why maybe it's a, you know, a twos-up machine, as it were. But I think that's probably down to the fact that there's just a regular LCD monitor under it, and it makes it easier to kind of achieve rather than have a custom LCD built for what is essentially a prototype. Yeah, but I think it's the aspect that you can. It makes you feel like you can touch the sound because you have the knobs and it's big. So that, I think, is the appeal of this project because, yes, uh, granular synthesis is not new and there are uh, iPad apps that work in a similar way, but when you put something into the physical dimension and you expand the size, uh, it, it takes a new form and you can do things that you couldn't do or maybe it's just the act of seeing you doing it that makes it special. Yeah. I like it. I like the idea, yeah. It sort of it reminds me a little bit of the whole concept of Reactable, which is sort of something that's quite small mm-hmm. and macro made really big so that it's just more obvious. And that, yeah. that I really like. I know, Robbie, you're also very into uh, granular. I know you're a big fan of that, yeah. and you often be seen micro-tweaking with bleeding eyes on your, uh, on your yeah. EDM projects and production works. I mean... This looks like a lot of fun. I mean, I don't know what... Obviously, yeah, it's proprietary. Yeah, I, I to- totally agree with Diego. I mean, we, we've had all this kind of thing for ages, and I mean, I, do, I use it a lot with um, Sonic Arts Granite, which is a, a granular granular AU I use a lot. But it, it's, it's the physicality of something so large, which makes it great. I think you, you, you touched on it with Reactable, because, I mean, when I first saw that Reactable table a few years ago, wherever it was, and then Björk had it out on tour and all that, it, it was it was amazing because it was that kind of visceral hands-on thing, and then they brought out the iPad app, and everyone went, "Oh, this is going to be amazing!" And then, actually, it wasn't quite the same doing it on a tiny little screen, you know, with a finger. So, you know, it, it, it's the kind of it's going the opposite way around, isn't it? Instead of starting with a physical thing, making it into a tiny app, it's basically taking software and making it into something visceral and physical you can actually play, which makes it kind of exciting. Um, I don't. Yeah, I think probably like you said, the the, the double aspect is because it's a it's for an installation thing. Yeah, and and I guess obviously if you think about uh, you know most monitors you buy are sixteen nine, and if you can imagine you know you split it in half, you've got the bit across the middle, and then you've got these little bits of screen that you're updating independently, presumably from both instruments. 
they must be off the same CPU, so it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess if you were to make this in the real world, uh, it would be uh, incredibly expensive because you'd have to have a very long, thin LCD to keep that kind of going, and that's just, you know, how many would you have to make to make it even viable? I know, Mark, what do you think? You, you agree there, Mark? I mean, th- there is something about the physicality of something like this, even though, you know, it's not something we've, we've not seen already elsewhere in, in miniature form. Uh, I'm trying to replicate it on the iPhone here. I've got this thing called Curtis that I'm sure works in almost exactly the same way, except I can't remember how to use it. <laughs> Maybe you've got a massive um, Do you know what's clever about yeah. it? It's the fact that you've got that knob that opens the window to set the width of the thing that you're... I, I know what else it reminds me of. Time Freezer. It's almost identical to that thing, that VST plugin, Time Freezer, by Mark Linked, I think his name is. I might have that slightly wrong. Linked, linked. He's. Uh, Let me see if I can. Uh, but anyway, yes, it's almost the same as that. There's a because there's a window uh, which you kind and of choose how much of the sound sampler. you're going to. Ah, what's hold that? On. Sampler. Uh, sampler. Sampler. Yeah. yeah, very similar to sampler as well. Yeah. Just yeah. this one. This one's called Curtis, which is similar again. Has that window in the middle. And you can, but I like the idea. You've got the knob in the middle. You grab the knob, and you can adjust the size of that window. And then you've got the slider as part of that thing as well. So you can slide along and choose whereabouts in the sample you're going to be. Just looking at the physicality of being able to grab that thing and slide it back and forth, it's just like whoa. Okay, so that suddenly makes it a very tactile thing to use, um, and it changes the relationship with it rather than trying to kind of fiddle around with it on a screen or doing it with a mouse or whatever i just i i love it i want one <laughs> where can i get one you know yeah well, um i wonder yeah, how much well, it would be to make i mean i don't know what they're probably using i mean it's probably just arduino or something like a, a pit controller or something i, I don't know um uh, diego have you have you experimented with i mean because you create physical instruments a lot of the time are you uh, into electronics in any way would you understand how maybe this happened or is this something that is out of bounds for you generally speaking well, I, I don't know the specifics of this one, but it doesn't matter how big it is. It's a computer, so there could be a tiny little box underneath uh, just uh, connected to a large display and to the knobs. But the, the whole thing could be actually run from an iPad, maybe with a custom interface. You never know. Um, I don't yeah. specifically build these things because I don't do uh, coding, so I, I, I don't know how to to code my own uh, apps uh, but uh, you know what you see uh, in the front is not always what what goes on behind no, the sure. scenes you know yeah exactly i'm i'm i i would just like to imagine um a raspberry pi 2 or something like that doing that yeah, doing the work because it would have a it would have an hdmi output and it could drive a bit and obviously the graphic what's nice about those graphics they use that kind of soundcloud bar representation of the uh, of the waveforms in place as well, which I think is a really nice yeah. kind of simplistic way of looking at things, and just just for the amplitude and frequency, I love it. Uh, I I don't know if there are any plans at all for this to go into production. I do know that. Uh, the, sorry, go. What's kind of nuts is that they they've got like this whole thing. They're running this whole campaign that everybody knows about this thing, and you read through the whole thing, and then there's this little bit at the bottom, sort of saying, "If you want us to produce any of your music, give us a call." And it's like, hang on, that's the wrong call to action for this. What you should be saying is, if you want one of these, you know, come to our Kickstarter or or send us. Uh, some money to develop it or whatever because i think everybody who sees it goes like wow i want one of them yeah i mean if it if it was running on a raspberry pi uh if if they could uh, even sell you the basic you know uh the basic components to make one as a kickstarter so that the shipping wouldn't be too difficult then i'm sure they'd sell loads of them in the same way that you know those stick on faders that you stick on the ipad that i bought oh yeah that's um, right yeah I think it was IK Multimedia or someone was selling those. It's just like, you know, simple solution to to a problem we've all got. Um, you just kind of, you know, create yeah. a whole load of them. And, I mean, couldn't you, I mean, um, essentially, couldn't you make a, you can make a, a desktop box which has the slider in it and the processor, which you just connect to a screen. Yeah, so presumably. Yeah, exactly. On. So without the cost, without the, you know, the, the, the cumbersome thing of having to deal with whatever type screen, you can just then connect it to whatever screen you wanted with an HDMI or whatever. Oh, that's true. Well, maybe that's... I, 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 ma- oh, sorry. Oh, go. sorry. 
Go, go. I bought the cumbersome thing off eBay recently for 99p. I've bought this huge, great big old wooden organ, which has got the key bed in it. Um, and it's got plenty of space inside for something like a Raspberry Pi, which I'm thinking about putting in there. But but it's essentially anybody could go and buy an organ off eBay for 99p because nobody wants them anymore. And then you've got like the key bed and you start putting stuff inside it and mm. uh, um, kind of if they could make it so it retrofitted. That's a good idea. Like that. um, the chat room says, actually, Wookiee in the chat room says, looks like it was coded in Super Collider, which I'm not sure how you would tell that, but maybe th that, that's entirely possible. I suppose the other possibility is it's got an absolutely massive computer uh, link to it, so it could be so fluid. I mean, because, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes it's easier to code things inefficiently with lots of resources than try and squeeze it down into something super tiny and make it efficient. I mean, after all, why would you need to make it efficient if it's an installation sort of art piece that, you know, just works, I suppose. But uh, great bit of inventivity there. And, and we'll definitely keep an eye on it. I know that uh, Mark Doty, um, who many people don't know, he sent an email in saying he really wants to get his hands on this because he is a complete, of all, for all the fact that he's Mr. Analog, he's also really into samplers and has been for years and years and years and does all that, used to do all of those kind of things. I think he said it was on an Ensonic EPS. I forget what the actual name of this, but but he said he's going to try and get hold of one and see if he can demo it because I think it obviously really appeals to him. But uh, great fun thing. If you want to find out more, um, I've got the website here. You can. Uh, it's kaleidoscope.io uh, and, and I'm presuming there would be information uh, as to what you might. Yeah, it doesn't really kind of say what, what they'll do, but you can contact the Kaleidoscope team. So there may well be stuff coming. It'll be good. I mean, it's the sort of thing that as people do, I mean, we've seen it before where people release something and it just creates a buzz and then their services are hired or, you know, it's, it's like they could do other things based on their creativity for something like that. And as I'm sure, Diego, you must have found in, in the past with yourself when you release a video of one of your fantastic instruments and your creativity shines through and people go, hey, do you want, <laughs> we've got a gig, do you want to do it? You know, I mean, I guess that's the way it works a lot of the time right yeah yeah i mean sometimes people ask if they can buy the the bus of Forte was one that a lot of people wanted and i was trying to explain people that this is not an instrument that can be played in a traditional way it's actually a random thing you, you, you press a key and it makes a note and then the next note can be it's not even a half tone it's microtonal in, in a stupid way <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to explain this is this is an ugly looking thing that happens to make an interesting sound. You don't want it. You can build your own if you want. I imagine the biggest challenge would actually be making a case to ship it in because that would <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I only have a case for the Lumino piano. And the reason why it's because I built a Lumino piano inside the you know those trunks that you use to carry clothes around when you go to college, you know. Oh yeah. The big yeah. So I use the bottom of it, and so the size is already a fit for that box. And, and the only reason why I need it is because of the light bulbs. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't really care. I'm not planning to go around and do live shows with... Jeez, yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah, Diego, we'd like you to tour with all your instruments. Can you imagine the casing job? They, they ask me. They, I receive emails sometimes. Hey, would you like to come over at this college or this school? Maybe you can bring some of your custom instruments. Sure. I mean, I, I can put them in the bag in my bag, like. Yeah, it's not so easy. Not so easy. No, I, I guess logistics are not something that all white people are always uh, strong on. But anyway, this leads very nicely into our next topic, which is uh, your product. Which, if I press, you could we can we can start with the iconic image. Assuming this plays, doesn't seem to want to today. Hmm. Ah, of the squirrel nibbling walnuts. <laughs> How did you get so close? You might think that you're about to watch a documentary well, about urban wildlife, it's, but that's not the every case. Day this is an introduction to rhythmic them. convolutions too. And, in a and moment, basically you, you, you give them a little bit of walnuts every day and then they know that they can come. And then one day you try to put in a microphone, then the next day you try to go closer and see if you can... Uh, at the very end, it was... a there was a moment when the squirrel actually rubbed his head over the lavalier mic because I think he liked it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, because some of them are kind of shy, but some others, they just love to play. And so when they know you, they know that you're not going to harm them. 
uh, they get closer and and the one that you see in the video uh, is the one that basically allowed me to get really really close with the with the iPhone I was like this close uh, wow. and, and the mic I had the microphone underneath you can't see it because it was too close uh, but yeah that was just an idea because <laughs> I didn't really I didn't really plan it that way uh, but then I realized you know they make a an interesting sound and it's rhythmic so maybe it can become one of the new impulse responses that's interesting I, i'm going to play a little bit more because uh yeah that was so interesting but i, I had to all right so let me just uh so i just got to find my mouse you might think that you're up or down so basically what you've done is created uh this is the new uh impulse response library there's 200 impulse responses made impulse responses I create my rhythmic impulse responses by recording a lot of different things, including musical contraptions, machines, devices, sounds made by animals, toys, objects, and different random events that have an interesting tonal or rhythmic quality. But that's just the beginning, because what really makes a difference is how I later transform those recordings into rhythmic impulse responses. There's a lot of tweaking and testing involved. For each source I record, I make dozens of impulse responses to get a few finalized ones that I really like. Because the key is to create a certain controlled randomness without losing the sonic texture of the original source. Now, let me give you an idea of how this works when applied on a synth sound. Just a dry sound. Here's the processing from one of the squirrel impulse responses. Take a look at the size parameter. This parameter transposes the impulse response up or down, which in return allows to change the speed of the rhythmic accents. Oh, it's fascinating. I could watch the whole of it all over again, but I heartily recommend that people go to uh, uh, check out your impulse responses at diegostocco.com. Oh. Oh, that's Sorry, a cat. Well, I thought you were just, I thought you were just, you just, your, your attention had been grabbed by yet another potential impulse response. Oh, oh my that, cat came in and it's like uh, the world stops. <laughs> <laughs> You know how cats are. <laughs> yeah. I so uh, we've, we've seen this kind of processing before. You know, impulse responses are generally used to sample spaces, right? You know, so you have, right. you know, you find maybe a great space and that, as we know, AudioEase uh, and various other companies create, you know, sample some of the world's most interesting spaces to do to, mm -hmm. to, to, and, and deliver them as impulse responses. But the notion of doing rhythmic ones, I know that some of our, I know that some of our guests have definitely done this before. I mean, is this something that you just recently discovered or you just thought you really wanted to focus on this for this particular project? Well, I've, I've been working with the non-reverbs inside Convolution for a long time. Uh, I think it's been a, at least 10 years. You know, I was doing drones, soundscapes, uh, and all kind of stuff. But then one day, I noticed that when you load a certain input response that has a shape inside, okay, because usually input responses, they, they look like a spark of noise. So they're, they're like a, a, tile, a cone yeah. of noise that goes down and that's it. Uh, so I, I loaded that and then I was using drums and I noticed the, the, the accents, you know, the rhythmic accents. And I thought, well, maybe I can expand this into something bigger, uh, more, more articulated. And so I, I, I tried to, you know, load different materials and that was the idea for Rhythmic Convolutions 1 that I released last year. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, I took some time. I had other things to do. Uh, you know, I was working on Omnisphere. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, just recently I, I said, you know what, it's time to do Rhythmic Convolutions 2. I had some new ideas for new sources. Uh, and I built also some musical contraptions that, you know, I, I thought they would make an interesting sound. And uh, so that's how it came together.
It's really interesting. I mean, just so just the, the process, perhaps some of our guests, uh, our panelists, sorry, our, uh, our listeners might be slightly confused as to what this actually is. I mean, because essentially when you're making reverbs, convolution reverbs essentially take a sample of a space via an impulse, yeah. whether it's a hand clap, pistol shot, what have you. And then that is then applied to an additional signal. So it's like a reverb, it creates a reverb space that in a convolution reverb uh, plug-in or device, you can then drop that in effectively and you get to use the space with certain parameters you can adjust by using rhythmic right. or unusual sound sources for impulses you can apply that and that's what creates these very odd sounds and um, do the will these work in pretty much any um, convolution plugin i mean or do, uh, is there a standard convolution impulse response file that you can drop anywhere or is it does it have do you have to provide different formats um a lot of impulse, a lot of convolution engines, plugins out there, they use um, regular audio files. They can be WAV files, uh, AFF, and that's the format that I'm using. I think there are a few convolution that only use a specific format, but um, I would recommend using one that has a size control because that allows to change the transposition of the input response, and by changing that, you're changing the tempo of the of the accents. Uh, at, at this point, this is kind of an unusual way of using convolution because uh, the, there isn't a dedicated convolution engine for rhythms. Right. You know, all of them are for reverbs, uh, right. mainly. And so this is an unusual way of using them, and, and you got to work around with what you have in the, in the engine. Uh, the one that I use the most are uh, Convolution Reverb Pro in Ableton Live, which is uh, a Max for Live uh, um, plugin that is very powerful. And if I am in Pro Tools, I use a Native Instruments Reflector that has similar controls, you know, the size and the EQ and all of that. Uh, I didn't try uh, others. I mean, I think Altiverb can do that too, right. the size. That's thing. the Audio Ease one, that, yeah. Uh, audio ease yeah, yeah no, I, I, well it sounds like there might be a challenge for one of our show sponsors perhaps to create a rhythmic convolution engine there somewhere along the lines I, I think we know of a company who are capable of such magical uh, audio uh, stuff uh, Mark you I know that you've uh, done yeah, some I'm... you've done some stuff with rhythmic <clears throat> convolution as well haven't you I mean because Logic obviously has uh, what's it called is it Space Designer does that state take regular WAV files as well Space Designer is a convolution reverb yes um and it definitely takes AIF files. I can't remember if it takes WAVs or not. I think you can pretty much export anything. I think you can export anything that you record back into it. Um, but there's, but uh, it also, you can also collect impulse responses from spaces using their audio impulse response utility, which is built into Gar the latest version of GarageBand. <clears throat> if you know how to open the contents of the app, the the impulse response utility app lives inside that. Ah, okay. Um, what I was going to say about impulse responses are, is even, <laughs> I'll correct my own grammar, um, uh, that a reverb is a dense body of delay reflections. So a reverb tends to happen in a very small relatively small space like if i go and stand out in a in in the open and there's buildings around me and i clap my hands i get echoes back from all the buildings and each of those echoes comes back at a different time so any natural space any natural large space has its own inherent rhythmic um kind of um i can't think of the word motion yeah so if i stand and clap i'll hear coming back from everywhere so it so an impulse uh response is uh is a rhythm anyway it's just that the uh the impulse um reverb uh, the convolution reverbs that we use have all been designed for reverb and if uh, and and it's all set in milliseconds but if we uh if apply, you, have, yeah. you know in the if same way we've applied tempo stuff yeah uh, yeah, we've applied like one sixty fourth and one sixteenth and uh, beat variations to LFOs, and we've applied them to envelopes, and we've applied them to just about anything else. So it must be fairly simple for somebody to to code that. And and if somebody did, 
uh, I would be very interested in using it because it it would make it. it uh, I mean, it would make sense of a lot of things right. for me. Yeah, um, R- uh, Robbie, I know you use yeah. convolution, you know, as one of your sort of tools in just general production stuff. I mean, th- this sounds like kind of an interesting concept to explore a little bit further. I mean, is this something that you do you use it a lot? I mean, because I think I guess do certain impulse responses have different frequency responses depending on what the impulse content has as yeah, well I, I quite often do this as well I, I record i record something really off the wall and i put it in as an impulse response quite often in um space designer in logic which incidentally i kept became came unstuck with this week because i went to reverse some sounds in space designer only to find that the latest version of logic has broken the reverse function oh no so you can't reverse anything at the moment in there which is a bit of oh. a bit of a gutting thing so yes, yeah, so if anyone's listening from Apple and Logic, fix it. Anyway, but um, no, um, yeah, I do, I do, I do this all the time. I mean, I, I, I like, like Diego said, it, it's, I, I'm all about interesting, interesting rhythms and building up interesting loops, and this is one of the things I, I use all the time. Um, probably not in quite as a, um, in quite as a scientific way as he does, but you know, I, I happy accidents more for me. Right, okay. Doing it, as opposed to, you know, setting out to design rhythmic stuff. But yeah. Mark, you have your hand uh, up. I, I put my hand up to interrupt <laughs> this. Oh, how very good of me. Um, so the other thing is that if you're standing in a natural space, in a big natural space, and I clap my hands, the echo of that building over there is completely different sounding to the echo of that building over there and the echo of that building over there. So in the same way that match EQ can take the EQ curve of um of an eq and match it to another one you can use impulse responses to match the eq of one thing to another thing so that Ah, okay the song i sent you the other day i used an impulse response to match the eq of the strangler's bass sound and then made my sampler sound like jean-jacques bernal enough that you spotted it i think i think diego wants to come back in here um it sounds like an incredibly dense sort of science because, I mean, like you say, with multiple multi-dimensional impulse responses, it's got it starts to get kind of complicated. Okay, the, the problem with with convolution uh, processing is that when you listen to the impulse response and you listen to the dry sound, you cannot think, okay, these two combined will sound this way because it doesn't work that way. It's a multiplication of signals over time. So the impulse responses have to be equalized in a certain specific way to sound good with a large number of sources. Uh-huh. And the equalization of those impulse responses is not the equalization that you would use if you would just use that sound by itself because it doesn't, it doesn't translate as it is. Right, I see. And that's the tricky part of rhythmic convolution because you think, oh, okay, I'm going to do, and then I'm going to use it as an impulse response. Yes, you can, but that doesn't mean it will sound good. Right. <laughs> because yeah. because it doesn't translate true. so in a linear way. It's not linear. It's right. a multiplication. And so there are sources that trigger a certain uh, resonant peak. You have to prevent that from happening. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by doing hundreds of these, testing them. Because, you know, when I see uh, people saying, well, I can do my own arrhythmic input responses. Well, you definitely can. I mean, I'm actually telling you how to do it. I'm showing you in my video the basic principle behind it. But it will take you some time. Right. It will take you some time to get it done right and also musically right. uh, Because some things don't translate that well. So I've just got one question as well. I mean, so when you say you're taking something like a squirrel eating a walnut, I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the ones intuitively would think that would have a very small sonic imprint. So, you know, you put something mm-hmm. with lots of bottom end in it, it's not really going to be affected. Yeah. Is that, so that's not the case. It, you can actually affect multiple frequencies. It really does. It's not so, it's not so, it's not about the source. It's about what you what you do it's about the combination of both because when you are processing a kick drum through an impulse response of a squirrel the squirrel doesn't really have anything below 500 hertz you know it's more like yeah you know? 
and yet you will still pro- the, the 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 kick drum will still come out rhythmically processed right because however convolution works and this is not the same in uh, because every engine works a little differently it's like samplers you know they all work with the same principle but they all sound different yeah so it's yeah. the same idea so basically when you have a, a, a an impulse response triggering something for some reason the low frequencies will always come out emphasized huh much more than I the can high explain end that. ah that's really that's really interesting i mean just, there are there are just so many show titles coming out of this conversation bass drum through I a squirrel you know. that is. <laughs> <laughs> the reason hold on a sec Sorry. I was thinking there were aliens listening in to, to, to various transmissions around the world. They were homing on that line. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Yeah, carry on. So the reason why that happens is because the impulse response itself, you know, it, it is um, is the difference between what real white noise would sound like in that space and the EQ of that space if applied to white noise. So the squirrel. Uh, might have its own EQ curve, but the uh, convolution engine will look at the squirrel and it will compare it to pure white noise and then it will do it on a time slice, sample by sample basis, to try and and to try and, and recreate the, the reverb of that space because that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to recreate a reverb. So if the squirrel has a very steep EQ curve, if it's a long way away from white noise and, there's, and, and the bottom end is a long way away from white noise, then it'll emphasize the bottom end or it will emphasize anything that's very different to, to what it would expect to see. That's why you get that sweep, because the sweep that you hear, that kind of boom thing, is basically every single frequency um, in the spectrum of white noise, but but then stretched out. Right. So white noise is all of them playing all at the same time, and and that sweep curve is all of them stretched out over a, a 45-second sweep. And and the reverb's looking for that in slices. It's going like, in the first millisecond, what happens? Oh, and the next bit, and... I see what you mean. Uh, we um, probably shouldn't dwell too long on the science of it. The, po- the point just, is, the, well, just 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 one second. The I've point, got the, one last, yeah, yeah. The point is that you can uh, basically this is this is out now, right, Diego? It's two hundred impulse responses. Yeah, and, and and the basic idea is you don't have to really worry much about how convolution works mathematically, because they Unless just sound nice. <laughs> they, they work. They work uh, musically in yeah. a way that makes sense, and and whatever aq carving whatever uh, all the kind of stuff that i did i did it so that they sound good you know and and that's the idea so where's the <laughs> where's the best place that people can get a hold of uh the these this convolution set well online when you uh when you search for rhythmic convolutions too it will lead you to a page uh where you can just uh, purchase them online and it's a very simple process. Uh, it downloads a folder. Um, if you're using Convolution Reverb Pro, you drag one input response into the Convolution Reverb, and the whole folder will appear. Same thing with the Native Instruments Reflector. You select one input response, and the whole folder will become available. Um, oh, right, other, so that's other yeah, it's intelligently. Machine. That's great. So... Yeah. Uh, um, Oh, no, I'm not interrupting. Um, So there's another thing to know here then, and that is that Contact, Native Instruments Contact, has a convolution reverb built into it. So if you don't think that you've got a convolution reverb and you've got Contact, you probably do have one. Or uh, I think, um, does Omnisphere have a convolution reverb built into it, Robbie? Yes, but... I know uh, the UVI Falcon and Mac 5 both have convolution so, reverbs where you can load impulse responses so you don't necessarily need to have space designer or waves ir or uh, the audio ease ah, okay or, so or even or even max for live if you've only got a very basic version of ableton if you've got contact you're there already right so there we go diego and pretty much anything with with well lots of things have it in so you can use it that's really so how long did this process take, do you think? I mean, have you been working on this for specifically? Do you have to get in the zone and then you're kind of there or can you only do a certain amount of it at a time because it's so intensive or how does it work? 
the the way I do things is that I I cannot collect sources for a very long time because uh, if you try to come up with a lot of ideas in a short amount of time, it doesn't work for me. So I just experience something one day I hear something go oh that's nice I record it and then I put it in a folder right and then when I start to have a certain amount of things a certain amount of sources I think okay now it's time to take seriously this project uh, and and complete it and make it happen so at that point I take everything that I recorded I start editing it uh, I record new things and I start editing and then when I have I mean I, the final product is 200 impulse responses, but I think I made about a thousand, a hundred. Wow. Uh, yeah, because wow. there, are, there are a lot of things that are similar, but they don't sound quite the same. Again, because it's the magic of whatever is going on inside Convolution. You listen to the same files, you go, they sound the same to me, and then you process a loop inside of it, and they don't sound the same. You know. Wow. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, what we're going to do is, I'm now, I'm now going to uh, just, we're going to have a well, word from our sponsor. No, I, I think because we've spent quite a long time on this, so I think what I'm going to do is uh, we'll move on to another subject. But before we do, we're going to go uh, have a word from our sponsor. Okay. <laughs> Ozone 7, of course, Produced from Isotope. Full professional the go-to mastering the acclaimed pretty mastering much tools across in the board. Ozone and Ozone Advanced. Now, the latest isotope innovations in Ozone 7 bring modern and vintage processing to the forefront of the music production experience. Updated for Ozone 7, Ozone's highly regarded maximizer features a brand new frequency-specific IRC4 algorithm that delivers transparent mixes with less pumping and distortion. Use it to smooth out an unwieldy mix or tame the kick drum peaks without affecting the vocals. The Dynamic EQ, now in both the advanced and standard versions of Ozone, lives and breathes with your audio, giving you more effective control over your sound without coloring your entire mix. Harness the precision of an equalizer and the musical ballistics of a compressor in one integrated processor. So if you want to check out Isotope Ozone, uh, go to isotope.com forward slash ozone. And of course, we do have a competition uh, from last week. We asked you to tweet out uh, the hashtag uh, Mastering Suite and the hashtag Ozone 7 to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. And we have a winner. The winner is a chap called Lewis Ling with two G's on the end. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Lewis, uh, L O. U-I-S-L-I-N-G-G. So, Lewis, if you're uh, watching, then uh, please do get in touch. Or if you're listening via MP3, get in touch. And we will get the Isotope Ferry to drop off a copy of Ozone 7 into your inbox. And we've also got another competition. They're giving it away again this week. They're so generous. So this, t- this time we want you to tweet the hashtag MixDoctor and the hashtag Ozone7 to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. So once again, we do thank Isotope for their sponsorship of the show and uh, very much appreciate it. So do enter the competition. There's a very good chance you could win something. Right. Um, so let's just get on some other news now. I think uh, the one thing that's been quite interesting, let's see if I've got this. This is uh, uh, more in the sort of synth world. This is now the news that uh, Roland have finally released uh, a Eurorack case. As you know, they, they brought out their System 500 and also the IRA effects range. And now they brought out the, the one of the things that was an issue with it was it had it required quite a lot of power so some of the lower end uh, Eurorack cases just didn't provide enough ampage to drive them so in this one it provides plenty to you could fill it with the um, system 1m ira stuff and also the system 1m which is the the full uh, uh, ACB voice in rack format, uh, 84 HP Euro case, and it can do a 2,000 milliamp power supply as well. Uh, we don't have any pricing of it yet, but uh, this is kind of kind of interesting. Oh, have you got have you got some information, Robbie? I, I heard it was 249 pounds. Oh, okay. That's How much? 249, 249 quid. 49 pounds. So that's probably that three nine nine dollars, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Uh, something like that. But this, I mean, this is, I mean, obviously, yeah, the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned, particularly if it can make all things to play. But one, one thing that this rose up to me was a bit of a question, which is perhaps something that you might be able to answer, Robbie. Obviously, the Eurorack format is, is pretty much responsible for this kind of, the, the, the uprise of the whole modular system because we've got a formalised 
small format where modules are affordable. I'm just wondering, though, whether there might be moves afoot for something that might be more Eurac 2, uh, something that had other, because obviously the thing about the Eurac format is the, the power is standardised, and I think on some of them you get, uh, the Dopefer ones, you get the CV and gate run along the rails as well. So if you've got a, a module that will talk this, it will actually allow you to... Uh, not have to patch those in and they, they kind of have the common bus so what i was wondering was uh, have you got any thoughts about what might constitute a good eurorack 2 kind of format if there's, there's something you'd like to see in there that perhaps they could consider i th i still think um uh there's there's still there's still an element with eurorack having gone into it totally you know new a couple of years ago where you feel a little bit insecure when you first start because you have to check all your modules that the plus and minus you know is the same way round and whether you get all your ribbon cables in the right way and all that kind of thing and I think to some people that kind of is just is a bridge too far and it kind of puts them off I don't know perhaps some sort of system what I, what I do find annoying is if I want to move modules around I have to I, I have to basically open the whole thing up and take the modules out It'd be great if there was almost some sort of um, standardised system where they put some sort of physical back on on modules that had a connector in the back of them, so that you could almost plug them in like Lego bricks in a way. Oh, I see into what you're a saying. System. Do you know what I mean? So you didn't have to keep going inside with ribbon cables. You know, there was some sort of standardisation of that. So one so edge or the other, could, yeah. Yeah, you could just go pop them in. You know, move them around, take them out, and all that kind of business. Um, I know that. There's such a vast difference in terms of depth with the modules and all that kind of thing. But perhaps if there was a, an agreement on a standardised depth for a Euro wrap module, that, like I say, something would, could, be, could be built onto the back of Euro wrap modules regardless of their actual component depth to right. allow them to be like a, like a physical plug-and-play system. Yeah, um, no, I think that's probably not a bad idea. I mean, I was wondering <laughs> about maybe the idea of having some more uh, bussing going on. I, I don't know, uh, Diego. Have you uh, a, a man who spends so much time um, meticulising about the nature of sound? Have you, have you been bitten by the uh, modular bug yet? I know you've got a bunch of synthesizers. Is this something? Have you uh, have you got been sucked into this world yet? Uh, not yet, and I'll tell you why. Because I mean, I just posted a video yesterday night of one of the devices that I assembled for the rhythmic impulse responses. I'm not going to go there again, but I'm just going to say I like. <laughs> the approach, I like the approach before modular became a format. I like the approach of people trying to assemble all kind of devices and make them work somehow together. Uh, you know, even if things don't match inside in terms of impedance and, <laughs> and all of that. But I like that approach a little better. So I, I know other people that go on eBay and they buy a specific thing that is not meant to be part of a modular, but it still makes a cool sound. And whatever comes out of it, I think it's more unique because right. it's, uh, it's only you. And it might not be easier, but who cares about being easier, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a it's all about discovery to a degree, yes, I suppose. Exactly, right. yeah, yeah. But I, I like the idea. I like the idea, but I don't have any Eurorack stuff at the moment. That's probably a man who has to, has to, who spends such a, ma a large amount of time already on sound design. There's probably not enough time in your life to get into that as well. Probably I'd imagine. A good idea, yes, <laughs> probably a good idea. It's a matter of prioritising. I know, Mark, I know yeah. you're you're you haven't joined the Eurorack uh, uh, cult just yet, or, or modular cult, no. perhaps. But it's interesting. I, I mean, I don't, I can't even see how I might. I'm afraid. I mean, I'm going to echo somebody called Marty has commented underneath here and he says new product an empty box for 300 quid and i'm like yeah i mean i i don't get it i just i want i i i, I like, like, things like board, isn't it? ipad ipad does a million different things and i can configure it to do a million different things and it's one physical thing to carry about same with laptop what did you say robbie it's no different buy to buying a pedal, pedal board with power and then putting pedals on it is it it's the similar thing. You still got to pay for that basically boring thing, but it's just the start okay, of sure, the journey. Okay, sure. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do that. I'd go out and buy a piece of wood from B and Q, and I'd spend <laughs> fifteen hours with an electric drill making it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, and I kind of, I think I echo some of Diego's comments as well. I mean, I just, it's a little bit, you know, it's a bit like buying Lego. Lego is cool and you can do some things with it and you can put it in different configurations maybe. But um, I don't know. I'm more interested in going and buying organs off eBay for 99p and then digging around in them with a soldering iron and seeing what happens. And one of the things that might happen is I might electrocute myself. Or you might break it. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting, you know. <laughs> that is exciting, yes. Yeah, I'm sure you can concur, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Modifying <laughs> Hardware. Yes, yeah, so I can understand how that would be. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, for those of you who perhaps uh, are less excited, it's probably, yes, I, I can understand. But it, it, I suppose it shows intent, and those are the things that are kind of interesting about this. Um, but I, I would like to see some expansion of the Eurorack format to enable uh, the case or the housing to have some extra functionality outside of just, you know, case and power and what have you. That would be, you know, the, if, it, if it actually fulfills some form of creating or routing, pro, routing process or something, I think that wouldn't be a bad place to go, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. Right, I think we've got uh, another video which I'm quite keen to play. This is... Uh, that's not it at all. It's not a video. What am I talking about? I thought it was a video. This is actually a piece by a chap called, uh, let me see if I switch it on there, by John Keston, who, uh, the red, the, there's a red sound, thing called a red sound dark style, which is kind of 80s, yeah. uh, 90, 90, 1999 synthesizer, eight voice VA, actually quite ahead of its time, absolutely vilified by, uh, by the, the interwebs in many ways, although uh, there wasn't probably all that much. I'm pressing the wrong buttons here. I just want to play. Can I not play that? That's all I want to do. There we go. He's posted a load of sound demos of this, which actually sound pretty luscious, in fact, in many ways. It's an eight-voice VA, uh, five-part multi-timbral. Some interesting features. I mean, there were a few questionable design uh, ideas, perhaps uh, phonos only, no volume control, uh, and a number of other things that were kind of quite uh, low output and, you know, perhaps a terrible bank of presets. All of those things that kind of lead to a kind of miss, maybe, in terms of marketing. So, and so, But rather than comment on this particular synthesizer, I was just wondering if any of you had had... Um, that experience, that experience where you get something new and you think, wow, this is going to be great. It's going to change everything. And then for some whatever reason, you either didn't connect with it or it didn't kind of fulfill your needs. And I, I'm, I'm not thinking of maybe something that was released yesterday, perhaps, or, you know, it, some, where the names can be protected to, for the, the innocent, to protect the innocent. But I'm just wondering if there's been anything along the line, because there have been some notorious ones. Robbie, you look like you're gagging to go there. Um, yeah, I've, I've had my fair share of things that I've been either kind of smokescreen by some ama amazing demo i mean what it's not so much hardware but quite often i buy i bought bought sound libraries based on thinking i would use it for a specific job or a need or something um particularly fallen foul of this with some orchestral libraries thought that it was great and then realized in the way that i was going to use it and in the way that i would arrange strings it doesn't work as well as i would want it to but it sounded amazing when it was on the on the website with somebody else who purpose did demos and arrangements for it so you know I, i've fallen foul of that before um and there's been very few since in my time that i've uh, or things that i've bought like that that i've really been disappointed i think one of the things that i really didn't get didn't get on with was i bought a v synth GT once and I know that a lot of people absolutely love that synth and go mad for it but I just could never get on with it and um, I just was I just felt very frustrated with it for a while and then just got rid of it because I just thought I know some people out there are making fantastic music with this but it just doesn't for whatever reason fit into the way I work and I think you know everyone's fallen foul of that sometime rather oh yeah definitely I think my first synth was a Korg MS-10 which I thought was going to change my life but I was listening to people like Depeche Mode and kind of really synth and Vince Clark stuff. You know, that was about the time. They were and it, this didn't make any of those sounds whatsoever. <laughs> and I really, I just, I just thought, what is this? It didn't work. I know, Diego, if you've, uh, you're probably a careful synth buyer, I imagine. Well, I, I have a personal experience that I will not go through because I don't want to talk about specific things. But there's one thing that I can say when it comes to patches. They are incredibly important because, yeah. yes, they can make or break a, a synth. And it's like saying, you know, we have this great, we have a bundle of ingredients that are amazing, 
but when you cook a meal together, they don't taste good. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I mean, there's got to be something wrong. So you either don't know how to cook them or the ingredients are not that good. So patches, yeah, they, they, they have to be – and doing patches is not – it's not like, okay, you, you do this and and it's going to – you have to somehow think about where this patch is going to be used and what kind of what – kind of, um, what do you want to inspire with that patch? Because unless you're trying to recreate a replica of an existing instrument, when you do like an analog instrument, then in that case, you have to cover the basics, okay? But when you're working on a new instrument, a new synth, a new concept, what is really new about that? How do you uh, convey that that sense into sound? And it's not easy, you know? So, yeah. No, that's very true. I mean, I think uh, um, that... I- and I think that's possibly what I think that the MS-10 probably came with a kind of how to sound like an oboe and a clarinet and all those kind of raw waveforms. But as soon as the filter got involved, it sort of screamed <laughs> and it wasn't really making any of the sounds that I was after. There are there are many examples like that in the history of synths where, you know, people bought a synth and they got disappointed. Sometimes it's also a cultural thing. Something works in Europe, doesn't work in the States. Or something works in Japan but doesn't work in the States. No, know? That, that, I think that's true. I, and I think in many ways, you know, the, as we know, the, the rise of presets that came through the sort of digital age of instruments, in many ways, probably could, you know, could actually be a hindrance as well as a, 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 a major plus. Because if it's got that signature sound that everybody wants to use in the current now sort of sounds, then great, people will buy it for that reason. So it becomes a marketing mm. tool. But without without that and it's just get your hands on it and make some sounds, it's a very different experience when interacting with an instrument. I don't know, Mark, have you, have, you, you must have been in that situation in the past as well, I mean, where um, an instrument has just, you haven't connected with it or it's, it's just a donkey for whatever reason. There aren't that many of those. I'm going to say uh, everything from the, uh, from the late 80s till the <laughs> mid-90s, actually. <laughs> and I'll tell you why, okay? I'm not, I'm, this isn't just some random comment either. Starting with um, probably the D50, actually, and the MT32, Roland suddenly lost this wonderful thing, which I discovered in synthesis, called a resonant filter. So the M1 didn't have a resonant filter. Everything suddenly became all sample playback-based and was no longer really synthesis. Um, I learned synthesis on a Roland SH-101 and I learned how to use an envelope and I've got these uh, wonderful books by Roland about how to make synthesizer sounds, how to make flutes and pianos and all that good stuff. So I kind of I figured out how to do all this stuff and I could pretty much shape anything into anything else that I wanted it to be by changing envelopes and by using filters. And I think the filter on a synth is the most important part of the synth and the the use or misuse of the filter chips by whoever made the filter like Curtis chips sound different in lots of different synths. So the way they're set up gives the synth its character, not really the waveforms, um, very much the filter. And, and, uh, until, uh, computing got fast enough to model good filters. There was a period in time where I would go out and I would buy synth after synth and bring it home. So like, uh, and, uh, all the emu stuff, the uh, the Proteus series. Everyone in house music was using Proteuses, and I was going, like, these things just sound horrible. Um, the EPS, um, uh, I think Yamaha saved the day with the SY77, but it wasn't very popular at the time. But that at least brought it was, back yeah, a very the powerful synthesis of, engine for what I remember. Uh, resonant filters, oh, uh, and all the Korg stuff. I mean, even I can't remember if the if the original wave station had a resonant filter, I've kind of got an inkling that it didn't and that now they've added it to the plugin in retrospect as if to pretend that maybe it did in the past. And then finally, my fine so lots of synths. I used to buy synths from Thatch Cottage, like one a month, and then I'd ring them up and go, this is really horrible. I need to send it back and change it for something else. And because, uh, um, you know, I bought lots of stuff from them, they kind of tended to... Uh, go with what I said and and I did lots of exchanges over a very short period of time before um, before I think settling on a TG500 Yamaha thing which had a resonant filter but this is my biggest bugbear look at this wonderful thing I remember that that's the yeah the the, the, the Agai synth station 25 
<laughs> it's like I no longer have an iPhone three, and this is absolutely no use at all. <laughs> so, so it's just sit in a box in a at the back of my studio, and I'm like going, well, maybe I should sell it on eBay. And then I look on eBay, and they're going for like ten or fifteen pounds, and, and <laughs> brand new boxed and everything. But you know, easily like done, easily done. Diego. Can I say something about, the, yeah, in, in regard to the comment that Mark was making about the resonance? Well, definitely, it's a great parameter to have. But when, when the D50 came in, uh, you know, every time you hear the resonant sweep, that's analog and that's the sound. And how many times can you continue? I mean, for how long are you going to continue making music with that specific timbre? Yeah. So I think the synth introduces something new. Uh, yeah. Yes, you might feel like it's missing mm, something, but you got to look that. at the picture. What is this synth introducing into the narrative of making music? Yeah, you know? I would agree. I would agree. It's like they took... The resonant filter is like an EQ. That's like well, yeah, the, that's true. But the, I mean, I would I would disagree to to an extent because I mean, for instance, I remember when I uh, when I reviewed the uh, Boomstar um, um, range, the SU Electronic <laughs> Boomstar. The first thing that struck me about it was not the filter; it was the oscillator and the waves and just the the girth and the charisma of just a sawtooth that had all of this massive weight to it. And you could listen to that. And with minimal filtering and just a bit of what you could create, because you have such a f- powerful source that you, you know, they, they do have a lot of, uh, of weight. It's yeah. not just the filter is important, but I don't, I, I agree with you, Diego. I think it has, a, it has limited use because there are, uh, there are many other sounds in the palette. I think, I, that, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just like to say, I mean, the 80s synths or whatever, I mean, that's kind of my era, really, since. Um, if you think of classic producers who are masters of synthesis on modern, on, on pop productions of the time, like David Gamson with, you know, with stuff like Scritti Politti and all those kind of things, those people were masters at taking analogue stuff and going, this is what analogue's great for, and taking all the new things like FM with DXs and all D50s with the PCM-based stuff and working yeah. out how to combine all those things to create interesting new textures and soundscapes that we hadn't had before. So I think all those synths, maybe, yeah, D50s didn't have resonant filters, but they all had a very important part to play in the evolution of synthesis and the way we kind of view sounds now. And when you look at modern instruments, whether it be Omnisphere or Falcon or any of these instruments that have like a massive you know, plethora of sounds, there's kind of references to all those things running through all those kind of sound sets. So I think I think they're all kind of they all found their place, whether they yeah. got resonant filter or not. Yeah, agreed. But they all everything we have now is like a sampler and a synthesizer combined in a really clever way. And at the end of the eighties, the beginning of the nineties, they were marketing samplers as synthesizers with ROM instead of RAM. So they were pretending that samplers were synthesizers, and they weren't. They were good sample playback machines, and I'm not discounting that some of the sounds in there were useful. What I'm saying is that as synthesizers, they were a bit rubbish. Yeah, I suppose the thing is it depends on what you, know, what you need from, from, from a synth. I mean, it depends on what it is that floats your boat creatively as well, doesn't it? Because there are some, I mean, as we started the program with granular synthesis, you know, some of those sounds are not filtered, they, they, but they have, because of the frequency content that those portions of the sample have, that they could be. I mean, it, it may as well be because they have less top end or whatever. I mean, sweeping through a sound or whatever, it gives you an, an awful lot of other sonic potentials, and it's just a different way of working, I suppose. Um, pr- I've really upset the chat room. I've I was going to say, really and, and keep in one. mind that a certain synthesis or a certain feature in one synth that then get replicated in other synths it's about how much people love to use that stuff because granular synthesis has been around for a while, but how many compositions do you listen that are made just with granular synthesis? You know? Well, I suppose, but why would you, how would you um, know necessarily? Well, not actually. <laughs> but, but how would you, how would you know? I suppose, Jerry? I mean, the point is, is it does to the listener, it's sort of irrelevant what the sounds are, unless you want to know what, how they're made. It's just that well, it sounds good, I suppose. Because, and this is something that I have to remind myself all the time. When you think about this, when you think about synths and synthesis, from a sound designer perspective, 
I mean, you are on a whole different planet. But when you look at this thing from the musician's perspective, people that just want to play something, they want to put their hands on a keyboard and do music, it's yeah. a whole different way of thinking. And, and, yeah. and to me, this is something that when you're a sound designer, you don't see it that way all, most of the time because you're focusing on creating the new thing and, every, and nothing is new enough because you already know all about it. But, but yeah, when it comes to a very music, point. you have to think differently, you know? Yeah. yeah. Which is and why the M1 was so popular, isn't it? I mean, the M1 was absolute king exactly. for a while. Yeah. And the 50 but as well, because they, they hit the spot. People loved it. People made music. People felt connected to this instrument. So it, it wasn't really a matter of resonant filter versus not resonant filters. Does this make me happy playing it? Yes. Good. I'm buying it. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, the reason I bought an M1, I remember, I mean, it's because it had so many signature sounds. I mean, obviously, you get the person exactly. who buys it the first I mean, time. Eric, made, Eric Pershing made many of those sounds, you know, if not all of them, you know. Wow. Did he? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, hope yeah. I'm hoping to have Eric on as a Sonic Talk uh, special yeah. interview sometime in the near future. So I will definitely ask him about, about all of that. Um, it feels like yeah. we're probably at, uh, at a good point to, uh, to quit while... Uh, well, we can. Um, there's been a, a, a great show. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. I want to say, uh, before we go, to obviously remind you to uh, take a, a, a look at uh, Isotope Ozone 7 and also check out the competition if you want to win Ozone 7, which is a fan fantastic mastering suite. Remember to tweet the hashtag MixDoctor, one word, and Ozone 7 to at SonicState and at SonicState and at Isotope Inc. And you'll be entered into the competition, which we will announce next week. But I want to say thank you very much to our guests. I'll start with you, Diego. I appreciate you getting up early and uh, letting us uh, pick your brains on convolution. I think that was a convolution in-depth discussion, which I think I certainly Thanks. found fascinating. And I, I'd, I'd love thank to talk you. about it even more, to be honest, because I still, I still want to find out more about Square. And also the fact that you have those... You've, you've obviously developed skills of the wildlife photographer as well. It's like that thing where you train the animals so that you can then, so, you know, obviously these, these paths lead to a lot of unexpected destinations, right? Exactly, yes. It's about, you know, you, ex you enjoy the, 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 the experience of doing these things and whatever life brings in, you use it for something, you know? Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us, Diego Stocker. Thank you, Don't Nick. forget. Thanks. Uh, go and check out his uh, Rhythmic Convolutions 2. Uh, go to Diego Stocker or just search for Rhythmic Convolutions. You'll be taken to somewhere where you can buy it. It's uh, available now. I'm sorry? I'm going to just type the link in the chat right now so people can find it yes. easily if they want to. Let me put that on the... There we go. gum.co forward slash FFSRC2, all capitals, in case you're listening to the audio version. Yes, thank you very much, Diego. Pleasure to have you as ever. And uh, of course, uh, Mr. Robbie Bronneman, I hope your uh, your cold is somehow better after having uh, this slight diversion. And once again, we thank your client for allowing you to take the time out to talk to us. Hope he's not. No problem. Well, I'm off to I'm off to the wilds of Sweden tomorrow to do a gig. So oh right, it's about oh, minus seven something there at the moment. So I, that's going to be. I hope it's not outdoors. It's on. A, it's on. A, it's on a yacht. <laughs> on a yacht. Jeez. Yes. That sounds quite Very exciting. Yeah. A select yeah. affair, then I'd imagine. I, I think so. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, have a great trip and uh, yeah. enjoy the glaciers and all those other things that Sweden is famous for. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully will do <laughs> brilliant thank you very much Robbie and of course Mark Tinley thank you for joining us as well been a pleasure to have your input as well this week thank you you're very welcome and you've inadvertently provided like a little link for me to talk about more impulse responses <laughs> no! so I just want to talk about I just want to talk about a website called echothief.com and it may be that there's an impulse response in their library from Sweden and what it basically is is a whole load of people going around capturing uh, convolution or impulses for convolution reverbs from all over the world and then just putting them on this website and you've got like a Google map and you click on a flag you zoom in you go to that space and you can download the impulse response and chuck, chuck it in your convolution reverb and, it, and it, oh. it's a uh, never-ending source of fascination and amazement for oh, me. Oh, there we go. That's interesting. It's what really a great cool, idea. Actually. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. And uh, that is it for this week. I want to say thank you to everybody in the chat room. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And uh, thanks to our sponsors, uh, UVI and also Isotope. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. <laughs>